everyone. It is then again with Glenn at the Northeast Georgia History Center, your favorite history podcast. And today we're going to talk about a subject that is actually not a grand scale, but is somewhat local here to the uh, Gainesville, Georgia area and the Northeast Georgia region. And I have with me Dr. Brian Sorahan of Renown University, who has studied this particular subject in some depth and one could say is so steeped in it that he was born directly into it. So, uh, Dr. Sorhan, tell us a little bit about yourself and what we're going to be talking about today. Okay. Our topic today is going to be the Northeast Georgia Gold Rush, which uh, started in the year 1828. This kind of the center of the uh, gold rush was the city of Dahlonega, which is just about 20, 25 miles north of Gainesville, where we are now. And that's where I grew up. So my interest in the Georgia Gold Rush has been pretty much lifelong. We're not uh, we're not native to the to the area. My uh, my family moved to Dahlonega in 1972, but uh, pretty much immediately we picked up on the importance of the Georgia Gold Rush, and in particular at that time it was still possible to see a lot more of the remnants of the Gold Rush around the town than uh, maybe it is today. Today I'm teaching in the uh, College of Education at Bernal University and live in Gainesville, but I spend a significant portion of my time in Dahlonega too. So, you know, tell us, as we like to say here at the History Center, in a nutshell, give us the gold rush. What happened, where specifically it occurred, and what effect it had on this region? Well, the Georgia gold rush was not the first major gold rush in U.S. history. That actually occurred at the end of the 1700s in western North Carolina. A man named Reed kicked over a rock that had a a lot of gold in it and sparked a uh, significantly smaller, but still, but still fairly important gold rush in that region. But gold was uh, discovered in North Georgia in uh, around the year 1828. Now, like a lot of other things, that particular date is controversial. But the date of 1828 is kind of the accepted beginning of the Georgia gold rush. And gold was mainly discovered in the area that at that time was part of the Cherokee Nation. And so when gold was discovered up here, it led to uh, an influx of tens of thousands of people, uh, most of whom were not Cherokee, into the Cherokee Nation. And it was a major factor in the eventual removal of the Cherokee from North Georgia. So uh, it had it had some uh, pretty lasting social effects in addition to the uh, to the economic effects of, of that gold rush as well. The Georgia gold rush proper probably lasted for about 11 or 12 years until the early 1840s. The gold started to be harder to get. There's still plenty up there, but it was more difficult to get by the middle 1840s. And then it kind of came to an end when gold was discovered in 1849 in California. So that 20-year period between 29 and 49 were the years that we really talk about the Georgia Gold Rush being a major event. They continued to search for gold afterwards, uh, clear on up into the 20th century, but never uh, there was never the excitement and the uh, major rush of people coming in that uh, that happened during those early years. And see that those darn 
49ers still in all of our national history thunder. We know we know this one's the most important gold rush in American history because it happened close to us, right? That's right. Well, you know, one of the interesting things is a large proportion of those 49ers were actually former 29ers who had come into Georgia for the gold rush 20 years earlier. So when the gold started getting harder to get here, they were always looking for the next big thing, right? But at that, uh, at that time, the gold in North Georgia was still fairly plentiful. And some of, the, some of the officials in Dahlonega tried to convince the miners to stay here. There's a famous uh, speech by uh, the uh, head assayer of the Dahlonega Mint, Matthew Stevenson, who uh, when the miners all started packing up to go to California, he said, he said, boys, there's no sense in going to California. He said, look at that ridge over there. There's more gold in it than any man can imagine. Boys, there's millions in it. And that particular phrase, there's millions in it, was later kind of transformed into a, a, a different phrase by Mark Twain. He, he transformed that phrase into there's gold in them there hills, which later became kind of the famous legendary gold mining saying. But interestingly, a lot of the techniques that were used in the California gold rush actually were developed here in Georgia. And a lot of the miners who went out there were deeply experienced because of the time that they had spent mining for gold in Georgia. So the Georgia gold rush wasn't as large, especially in terms of the amount of gold produced as the one in California. It was still pretty significant. But the effect of it on the California gold rush probably uh, had the gold rush, the Georgia gold rush not happened, the California gold rush might not have been as productive because the people would not have had the experience that they gathered here in, in the mountains of North Georgia. We're talking about, you know, the experience of the miners and, and the miners themselves. You know, there are a lot of neat resources, or I should say sources out there, but you've got to kind of dig through them. And I know you've, you've done a good bit of that. Tell us a little bit about what the, the typical 29er was like. Well, the typical 29er was probably a person who came from the region of the South. Generally, some of these miners were actually coming in from the digging in Western North Carolina, but they were all kinds of people, really. They were, they were city dwellers, shopkeepers. Some of them had mining experience. Probably, just statistically, most of them would have been farmers. And it was the lure of, uh, of easy wealth that, uh, that seemed to appeal to just about everybody. Because the gold rush, well, because the gold discovery had, had occurred in the Cherokee Nation, there were a lot of restrictions about people coming into the area. Benjamin Parks is the, uh, the man who, according to legend, first discovered gold in 1828. He was a uh, farmer and a kind of a backwoodsman who lived in the area, was hunting for uh, deer one day along the Chesity River and kicked over a rock that had a great big uh, piece of gold in it. He recognized what it was and started doing the mining, but he also wasn't quiet about it. And when the word got out, all of these people from all walks of life came in. Now, there were, there were very important people in, in American history who were involved as well. John Calhoun, the famous senator from South Carolina, who was a very influential politician in the uh, pre-war era. Calhoun had a summer home in North Georgia 
near the area where the gold was discovered and uh, eventually purchased one of the uh, most productive mines in the area and worked it himself. So when you say all walks of life, uh, you're talking about everyone from U.S. senators probably down to uh, stock boys in uh, somebody's uh, somebody's store. <laughs> so... You know, we we all have this this popular image that is certainly reinforced by movies and art that a that when you mine gold in a gold rush, it's a uh, one bearded coot on a mule. He's got a pickaxe and a metal pan, and he ties his mule up to a tree and he wades out into the middle of a stream and he takes his pan and he starts basically digging in the water and swirling it around. How close to truth is that? How much did that evolve over time? Well, that, that may be a relatively accurate picture of the very first people who came rushing into the area soon after the discovery of gold. There was nothing here, in essence. The uh, North Georgia Mountains were a fairly undeveloped area. The Cherokee had developed a lot of the areas outside of the mountains proper, but it was hard to get around here. There wasn't much to see or do, and even getting food was a little bit difficult. So, yeah, probably early on, although the the kind of the elderly white-bearded miner may not have been as typical of those early miners as um, he's been in uh, in movies and so forth, but probably more young men were uh, rushing into the area because this was kind of, as they say, this was kind of no country for old men. <laughs> but as time went on, especially fairly early in the Georgia Gold Rush, they began to form gold mining companies, and these companies would buy up several of the land lots that had been given away to miners in the uh, land lottery of 1838. And so um, that kind of stereotypical miner was more likely to be a uh, person who was working for a company here, or possibly, particularly early on, the miner could have been a slave because there were a number of people who owned slaves who set up mining areas. Uh, John C. Calhoun uh, was one example. He owned plantations in South Carolina, and during the off-season, he would bring groups of slaves here. But almost ironic things that happened was sometimes plantation owners would hire out their slaves in the beginning to work in the gold fields. But what they discovered was the people who were, in essence, renting enslaved human beings didn't really have any stake in keeping them alive and healthy and well-fed. And so if a plantation owner rented his slaves to a uh, miner in North Georgia, he there was a, a good chance that they were going to be either extremely unhealthy or possibly even die before the plantation owner got them back. It was a a lot of really serious hard work in a region where food was scarce and uh, shelter was scarce. And so um, plantation owners eventually stopped doing this because it was detrimental to the health of their slaves. I think the, uh, the stereotypical gold miner, the kind of Gabby Hayes fellow with the big beard and the uh, turned up hat and so forth with his mule, probably more typical of the Western gold rushes. Those gold rushes took place much further from civilization and often were driven, like you say, by somebody just going out into an area where there was likely to be gold and digging it. Most of the uh, drawings that we see in in, uh, the history books depicting the 1829 gold miner, the fellow was dressed like probably any common working man would be dressed in the 1820, wearing maybe a low-crowned top hat, which we never think of a gold miner wearing a top hat and uh, coat and, you know, 
typical 1820s male clothing. And, I'm, and you know, I'm glad you pointed out that's one of the things we've done here at the uh, at the museum. And for those of you interested, you know, we've done a episode of our live broadcast on Facebook where we actually look at some of those gold miners from 1829, and, and we've got someone dressed up. And one of the comments we we got was that doesn't look anything like a gold miner, like I imagine. I mean, it's like, well, no, because he's not from the Civil War. He's from the 1820s, and that's a very distinctive dress of the kind that you just described. You know, he's he's going to be wearing a coat probably with tails because that's the style. It's going to be a tall hat and everything else. And I'm glad, you know, you brought up the, the, the human cost, especially in terms of enslaved people working in the mines. But then this is something you've shared with me before from your younger days, sort of tromping through the woods up in Dahlonega and, and around that area, the environmental impact that the gold rush had on, you know, the landscape and the flora and the fauna up there. Can you speak a little bit to, to that? That's certainly a, an unknown and practically unexplored aspect of the North Georgia gold rush. Well, even with the large number of people in the initial gold rush that were trying to find gold, most of that work was done with hand tools, smaller scale. So you might find a lot of pits dug into the side of mountains and so forth, but it didn't really change the, the landscape quite so much. A little bit later on, before the 1830s were out, the miners were constantly looking for ways to move more dirt because the more dirt you move and process, the more gold you're likely to find. You know, it's just simple mathematics. So they invented a method called the Dahlonega method in which they would dam up a stream toward the top of a mountain, collect water behind this dam, and then at a certain point, either open a gate or just knock down the dam, and you get a huge torrent of water tearing down the side of the hill, washing out trees and dirt and rock and everything else. And this this uh, torrent of water was then directed through some machinery such as a stamp mill to crush up the rock or such as a uh, sluice box which had riffles in the bottom to catch gold and then the dirt that wasn't caught up would go into the streets and so you had this kind of mega erosion event that was happening with with the breaking of the dam and then you also had uh, siltation in the streams now there's another method for mining gold using water called hydraulic mine. And that involves taking big water cannons, almost like soup fire hose, and shooting streams of water into the side of a hill to wash away the dirt. And then once again, the dirt, the rock, and everything that were washed down would be channeled through the machinery to break it up and uh, try to re recover the gold at the bottom. This particular form of mining was invented in the West, but it was brought back to the East, especially in the 1850s and a little bit later. And so this hydraulic mining was in use clear up into the 20th century, and they washed away huge areas of hills. They, they called these places that were washed away cuts and you can still see gigantic cuts. They look like canyons in the landscape from this hydraulic mining. The other thing it did was it washed millions of tons of dirt into the streams. And some of the stream beds actually are built up way above their natural level, even today, because of all this dirt that washed down the street. Now, the other thing that was going on with all of that was that they used mercury as a way to chemically recover more gold because gold will bond with mercury they call it amalgamation but then 
if you take the gold and mercury amalgamate out, put it in a, uh, in a cruet or something to heat it up and um, heat it to a certain temperature, that mercury will evaporate, but the gold doesn't. It stays where it is. And so using mercury to recover gold was a very common practice even long ago, but most of that mercury went into the environment as well. It was, uh, it was lost either through washing into streams and washing into sediments, or the mercury vapor would eventually uh, come to rest somewhere. So there are large areas in and around Delonaga, and I'm sure in other places in North Georgia, where mercury contamination is still an issue because of this mine. They built huge canals, 35 or 36 miles of canals in, in Lumpkin County to carry water from the upper parts of the mountains down to the gold mining areas where uh, the hydraulic cannons were set up. They had to use gravity to build up the water pressure. And so these canals were extensive and you can still see those canals in uh, lots of places every day. In fact, where my parents live up there, you can walk down in the woods and see the remnants of some of these canal systems. So yeah, there were quite a few environmental effects of the gold rush that have persisted today. Probably most of those environmental effects resulted from later gold mining during the latter half of the 19th century and the early parts of the 20th century. But uh, Nonetheless, it was, a, it was a, uh, a remnant of that gold mining past that took place. That has certainly had a huge effect on Dahlonega's topography and on its, and its physical shape, but, it's, but Dahlonega's spiritual legacy, let's say, of being the, the home of the gold rush. And, and you having, you know, spent a lot of time growing up there, can you speak just a little bit to how Dahlonega has come to identify itself with this historic event, how it continues to be affected by it, how perhaps it uses it to boost tourism and just a sense of its own local identity. Sure. Delonica has always called itself the gold city. As I said, when, when my family moved to uh, Delonica back in the 1970s, there were still a lot of visible re remnants of the gold rush left. With the development that's occurred in the past 50 years or so, since then, of course, uh, a lot of these uh, a lot of these old gold mines and places are no longer visible. But Probably one of the most visible reminders is the Lumpkin County Courthouse on the square in Delonica, which was built in uh, 1839, I believe it was, and is the oldest standing courthouse in the state of Georgia today. Interesting thing about the courthouse is the bricks that were used to construct it were made in from using clay from local streams. And when they renovated the courthouse back in the 1960s, they analyzed a few of these bricks and found out that uh, many of them had traces of gold in them. So the uh, the courthouse there um, can be said to actually be built of gold. But Delonica has capitalized on its history of the gold rush probably at least since the middle of the 20th century to a great extent. Around the 1950s, there was kind of a push to get some economic development in the area. And there were several people who were instrumental in um, publicizing this gold history. Madeline Anthony was a lady who was kind of relentless in publicizing Delonica's gold history at that time. They started a festival called the uh, Gold Rush Festival in the 50s that uh, each October commemorates uh, the gold rush, and um, there have been years when uh, there may have been 150,000 visitors, so probably more visitors to the Gold Rush Festival than there were miners in the gold rush at the time. And tourism is still probably one of the largest economic 
uh, drivers in Lumpkin County, if not if not the largest. The uh, University of North Georgia, which has its own gold rush connections, is another big economic driver there. So the town was really built around gold. There have been a lot of changes in the past 40 to 50 years that mean that gold probably isn't as in the forefront of everyone's minds as it might have been in the 70s or 80s. But it's still it's still a huge issue. Of course, you can go to Dahlonega today and visit gold mines. There's the uh, Consolidated Gold Mine, which is on the location of some gold mines that go back to the original gold rush area, but were mainly in operation during the uh, early 1900s. And then there's the Chrisom Gold Mine, which is the oldest operating gold mine. They continue to uh, mine for gold there. And they have an original stamp mill that was used to crush the mining ore and so forth at the uh, Christen mine. And of course, the visitors can pan for gold and take tours and do things like that as well. So, so yeah, the gold history has been has, has been a uh, a great benefit to the Delonica area. And I, you know, I have to I have to confess, I've always loved Delonica, and it's got it's got something for everyone. It's got that rich history. You can go there, you can scratch the the touristy surface of things, and eat your you know funnel cakes, and go pan for gold in a mine. But if you are also interested in some of that deep history, like you're talking about, like you've studied so much, you can go there, and you can you know on a crisp fall day. You can see some of that too. Visit the the courthouse. Uh, I think they even have a driving tour now. Some of the areas close to downtown. It's a it's a beautiful spot, nestled in the mountains, and it's great having it just down the road. Uh, Dr. Sorhan, that's about all the time we have left, but it has been great having you. Hopefully this will uh, inspire folks to do a little bit more research, maybe visit the area, and maybe not think of San Francisco the next time they hear the term gold rush. Thank you very much, Glenn. It's been my pleasure to be here. Absolutely. We'll have to have you on again. Dr. Sorhan is a pretty good local historian. He has done a lot of research and a lot of reading on a lot of subjects, so we will, if he's willing to come back, we will have him on on some more local topics. That good with you? sir? Uh, That's always fine with me. It's good to be pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Folks, thanks for tuning in to Vin again at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Until we meet again, please stay safe and take care. Vin again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review if you haven't already. We also hope to see you in the chat during our weekly live streams on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern and our members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Become a digital member for as low as $3 a month or $35 a year at www.negahc.org member.